Good evening, everyone. Uh, I'm Danielle Citrin. I am the director of the Law Tech Center at UVA Law School and a professor at the law school. Um, and I'm excited to have this wonderful webinar and chance to talk to Julia Dahl um, about her book, The Missing Hours. Um, so let me first, though, start by thanking um, the, the folks at the Law Tech Center our co-sponsors, the Law, Innovation, Security, and Technology Student Group, and the Virginia Journal on Law and Technology. Um, so now I have the honor of introducing Julia Dahl, who is, she's a crime writer and a journalism professor at NYU. But I first got to know Julia when she was a crime reporter for CBS and then became, I think, the um, deputy managing editor of the crime report. Um, and over the last eight years, we sort of flipped the script, and I am now the uber fan um, for Julia's crime novels. Um, her first mystery, Invisible City, won a series of awards for, uh, for best first novel and the Boston Globe's um, best books of, of 2014. And every uh, her mysteries keep making its way into all of these like best books uh, lists. Um, and so her, she has a series of three books. Rebecca um, Roberts is the um, protagonist. And I, I always uh, ping Julia and say, when's the next one coming? I'm on the edge of my seat. I need another one. Um, and what uh, the, the coup de grace, so there are three of them, uh, Invisible City, uh, Run You Down and Conviction, they're brilliant. And, and this fourth book though is, is not in that series. Um, it's called The Missing Hours. Um, and it is a sort of standalone thriller gripping crime book. Um, and again, that too has won a series of awards hailed by the New York Times um, as a great reckoning with the moment that we find ourselves in. Um, so just before we get started, I just want to say to the audience, please put your questions in the Q&A box at the which appears at the bottom of our screens. We're gonna, Andrew's gonna help me take questions and put them in the chat. Um, so Julia, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Hello, it's, thank you. It's great fun being, being your fan and turning the tables as opposed to you calling me uh, for expert advice. I now in the last eight years have been looking to you uh, for inspiration, <laughs> right? For, for art um, and education. So it's been a great joy. Um, it's super cool to be here. Thank you, thank you. So Julie, would you tell our audience a bit about the book, The Missing Hours, and how your reporting informed the sort of gripping story at the heart of the novel? Sure, yeah, yeah. So The Missing Hours is a story, basically it, chapter one is a young woman, a college freshman named Claudia wakes up. She knows that she's been sexually assaulted but she has no idea what happened. She was she was drunk the night before. And the book is how she and the people around her and the perpetrators deal with it, basically. It's sort of like the bomb of the assault goes off and the shrapnel goes everywhere. And the book is at some level about her figuring out, and we can talk about this a little more, that um, that the law is not really going to help her that yeah. and what she's going to do to find her own measure of justice instead of going you know sort of going to the police in the way that we're sort of told we're supposed to do um but the genesis of the book it's funny when I was thinking about talking to you about this I realized that I've been writing one way or another about sexual assault or abuse 
since the very beginning of my career as a crime journalist. I sort of started my career in um, entertainment and women's magazines, but around 2004, I started writing stories for Seventeen magazine about crimes against and by teenagers. And the very first story I was sent on was out to um, a young woman's home in Tennessee. She had um, accused her cousin of assaulting her. And it had become a sort of a, a, a traumatic situation in many ways, mostly because law enforcement and her family refused to believe her, right? And I remember sitting in her living room with her and she, you know, oh, you know, with my tape recorder, right? And she just told me the whole story of what she remembered and what she didn't remember. And what she dwelled on though was not the assault. What she, what she dwelled on was the pain and the trauma of and then I told my dad and he didn't believe me. And then I told my mom and yeah. he didn't believe me. And, you know, they didn't want me to go to anyone else because they thought we don't believe you. Right. Yeah. And those stories sort of kept coming up. That was the first time. Um, but then I moved on. I, I spent time at, at the New York Post. I was a reporter there, which is what my my series of Invisible City is about. But then I got to work. I went to a nonprofit criminal justice news site called The Crime Report. And that was a really great job because it was sort of like I got to write about anything in criminal justice that I found interesting, which is rare, right? And there I really started to get more serious about writing about sex crimes and issues around them. I wrote a couple stories that, and and all these stories all, that I'll tell really informed the missing hours. It was sort of like, I, it was almost like I was sort of gearing up to write this book after so many years of reporting. And um, the first one I remember doing a big piece on, um, on, on uh, uh, rape kits, right? And the, the thousands, tens, thousands, millions, you know, hundreds of thousands that are languishing and going bad in freezers all across America, right? And I remember interviewing a, a woman who'd been assaulted um, years ago and nothing had happened. And then finally, you know, literally 20 years later, she gets a phone call and they're like, we, you know, we've matched the DNA that we found in you in the early eighties, right? Um, and listen, you know, just listening to her story of the pain of that 20 years of sort of having the, 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 you know, law enforcement kind of be like, well, there's not a lot we can do, you know, you don't have a proper description. Um, I did another story about the difficulty involved in prosecuting men who sort of sell young women for sex, right? So that, you know, especially teenagers, they get sort of, you know, they have bad, they have difficult home lives, they get caught up with, um, you know, with men who say they love them and then, you know, sell them, but if they won't testify against the men, it's all but impossible to get the, the, the men behind bars, that kind of thing. So I wrote those stories and then I moved on to CBS News. And when I was there, I pitched sort of a series um, about crimes against women, sex crimes against women. And I did two stories that really then informed the missing hours. One was, this was around, I think it was about 2013, um, when uh, college camp, so obviously, campus sexual assault is something that's been going on as long as there have been campuses right um but in the in the you know early aughts is that right early aughts no early teens i don't really know how to, how to, just, no, how to talk about don't the worry. decades these days yeah. <laughs> it wasn't the 80s it was more recently um college students on college campuses it was like college campuses they they the the, the when i was in college in the 90s nobody talked about sexual assault, right? I mean, it was, and if you got drunk and something happened to you, it was, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it was like, you shouldn't have gotten so drunk, right? And that conversation, thank God, has changed. But 
the the what what we found out in you know around 2010 2012 was that women work girls were coming forward and saying this happened to me something you know i was drunk or i was with someone and he did this and he lives on my hall help me but the colleges hadn't caught up they didn't really know how to deal with it and you know at some level i don't blame them i mean sexual we, as we all know sexual abuse and sexual assault is one of the most complicated complicated crimes for police to investigate you know, colleges don't really have the resources for that, but they needed to get themselves together to have, you know, ways to collect this information, to, to deal with the, the young women, to deal with, you know, to do some kind of mediation if there was some, to go to cops if necessary. And a lot of universities had, just couldn't do it. They, or they wouldn't do it. And so I did a profile of these women um, in at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, who sued the university for the way that the university had dealt with, or rather not dealt with their sexual abuse um, on campus or near campus. And then I did another story about women in DC who talked about having been sexually assaulted and, but that the most traumatic part of the situation was not the sexual assault, but when they went to the police and the police didn't believe them or treated them like they were, they were the ones who should be ashamed of themselves and stuff like that. So all that stuff was kind of in my head. And then in 2012 came the Steubenville case. And I don't know if some of you, you know, many of you may have heard of that, maybe not. I realize it's 10 years ago now, but long story short, and I was working as a reporter at CBS News, um, a, a, a case broke out of, a story broke out of Steubenville, Ohio. And interestingly enough, the story really broke because anonymous, Remember that like kind of hacktivist, hacktivist group, group. Mm -hmm. but right. So they got involved. Somehow they learned about it. And basically what had happened was a, a, you know, a teenage girl went to a party, got, you know, very intoxicated and was assaulted by at least two boys. And what sort of made this, you know, this story be the more, most, most egregious was that because, you know, no one, everybody has a cell phone, they took pictures and they mm -hmm. took videos and, so the girl wakes up the next morning and she knows something's happened. She has no idea what, but all of a sudden these pictures are going around among her friends. And eventually they, one of the pictures gets to an adult and, you know, there's a little bit of sort of, yeah. you, you know, uh, the boys involved were the football team, the football team was state champions. You know, it's like, it's almost like, it's almost like a, a cliche, the way the town sort of rallied around the boys. And finally anonymous gets involved and sort of does this thing where they're like, if you don't arrest these boys or do something, we're going to hack into all your computers and, you know, destroy you all. Right. So I covered that case over the next year or so while they were doing the investigation while people you know at the school were getting fired and while they were defending the boys and while then the boys got um in con indicted and a um, two both two were convicted um and i couldn't stop thinking but the thing i thought about this case more like over and over was i could not stop thinking about this young girl and what it must have been like for her but even further what it must have been like for her mom her sister her best friend, to know that, especially for the girl, to know that every time you meet somebody for the rest of your life, especially if you're staying in this town, you would have no idea if they'd seen these pictures of you in this traumatic, humiliating moment. And that, like, I couldn't get that out of my head. And, and over and over, I was starting to see, and this is when you and I, Danielle, started to connect, right? The, over and over, yeah. so I was starting to see cases like this. Um, Retea Parsons, Audrey Potts, these are girls who had intimate photos of themselves, either, either ones that they'd taken or a boyfriend had taken or that had been taken of them surreptitiously spread around the internet and they committed suicide. Young teenage girls, right? 
Um, and I was seeing that over and over and I realized, and so I, so, you know, as a crime reporter, I'm thinking, this is interesting. Let's talk, let's, who should I talk to about, you know, and, and, and a lot of the stories out of like the local affiliates were like, you know, the parents saying things like we went to the cops and they said there was nothing we could do, you know, and that, that sort of caught my ear, like nothing you can do. But then I would call, I called, I found Danielle and I found Marianne Franks, the two of you sort of together. Right. And, you know, I realized that one of the things that you were talking about was that, that the ability of technology to perpetrate crimes, that the law hadn't caught up to what the crimes were. And that was creating this difficulty for, you know, and trauma for a lot of women. So I started writing about that. And, and I always knew that I wanted to write that story of like, I, I mean, I think of Claudia in some ways, although her personality and life is very different from the young woman in Steubenville, but very much I spent years thinking, what was it like for that young woman? And when I wrote The Missing Hours, I wanted to, that was what I wanted to do was explore and try to, fo- you know, I mean, this is what art and literature does, right? Like we try to sort of put a mirror up to society, right? And to force people into a, a moment, if possible, of empathy, right? So what to, to, you know, I spent a lot of painful time sort of closing my eyes and thinking, this has happened to you. Where do you feel it in your body? What do you do? What, what questions would you have? What, you know, and that kind of thing, what would, if this has happened to your sister, what do you do? Um, and that was sort of where I went with the missing hours. And the fact that it affects a crime like that affects so many different people. It's not just the person whose body the crime is perpetrated on, but her family, the perpetrator's families, right? Like people that aren't even involved get roped in because it's, it's crimes are really just sort of spread. Long-winded perhaps. (laughs) No, no. What you captured, I think so beautifully in the book that what I think makes it painful when you first read it and why I read it in four hours, I couldn't put it down. I was like gripped. Um, is that you really capture the sense of um, that 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 the because the sexual assault was taped and shared, and that it would be almost like an endless violation against her body and the yeah. shame that Claudia feels that then and that no one will care. Yeah, yeah. And that sense of like having been slut shamed before, almost like she had that. Um, she was taped while doing a reality yeah. TV show, right? right? Kissing and then slut shamed. Yeah. So she almost had, she had sort of reckoned with this idea of being shamed for her sexuality Yeah. in ways yeah. that seem so prosaic, right? That how awful to be shamed for that, but right. then how she suffers, right? When the sexual assault, there is a video witness and that yeah. others are sharing that video, yeah. right? And so it really, it hits you, right? And what I think, um, and and worth would be, I'd love to hear more, a bit more about, um, you know, you experience as a firsthand, as a reporter, Mm -hmm. victims saying to you that law enforcement, they go to law enforcement and every time it was like a terrible rinse and repeat, nothing we can do. Either blaming the victims or not believing them, right? Like, Right. Like, oh, you sure that happened to you? You know, right. even right. if there's like video proof of this a sexual assault and you do, you hold up a mirror in a most devastating way, mm-hmm. right? The, the book does, that is you really echo reality. And there's this one part of the book that it would be interesting for you to talk about a bit where you mm-hmm. say like Claudia is thinking about how 
New York has this newly passed revenge porn law. And she's like, they're not going to help me. Right. 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 And so maybe a bit more, because you have this choice, I'm sure, as a writer, where you think, like, do I give any hope? Do you know what I'm saying? And that, I guess, is the, the story of retribution, the non-legal, yeah. extra-legal part. And you gave us so much to think about in this book about the criminal justice system and how kind of unfair and random it is, right? And so, yeah. and how that costs victims, yeah. like, internalized. So yeah. just, just, you know, one you of have the things- that choice, you know, yeah. like, I... Like, how does that affect you as a writer? And as you're thinking about the way in this, to me, this book is so important as a clarion call of education. And I have it in my appendix in my new book. (laughs) Should read because we can really see suffering and how you educate and you need and legal change that you helped launch as a result of your reporting. So just like a little bit more because your work both has helped spur legal change it has that reporting helped get lawmakers to care, mm-hmm. right? As we were advocating, and now serves as education, and it, but mm-hmm. it's bleak, right? So, like, it's what bleak. in that right in that moment as you're writing, like, did you think about not having like, please maybe help a little, or was that just <laughs> like, I want I want this to be as brutal and realistic as possible? Right. Do you know, like those choices that you yeah, would be interesting you know. To have. So one of the things I really wanted to do with this was, you know, when you're, when you're a reporter, and I think this probably happens as an attorney too, um, when you're a reporter, there's this sort of unspoken thing about who deserves coverage and who doesn't, right? Like, so if you're watching Dateline or 2020 or whatever, you're not getting, you know, the, the people that get the one hour, two hour specials are the white ladies in suburbia who've been kidnapped and murdered, right? It's not you know, a black woman who's, you know, maybe had a drug problem, or it's not a woman of any race that's been involved in sex work. It's not someone, it tends not to be, frankly, even just someone who doesn't have a lot of money, right? Mm-hmm. There's a sense of like, um, you know, a good victim and a, and a not so good victim. And that pisses me off, right? Like, like, yeah. you know, and one of the things that, that this book for me was so much about was that it does not matter. Like yeah. that getting drunk is not, the result of getting drunk should not be rape right? Getting the result of being sexually active should not be rape, right? That, 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 that everyone deserves justice when they've had a a violation of their body, right? Um, But that's just not the case. And so one of the things that I wanted to do with this book was to make the protagonist, Claudia, not the most likable person around. Like she's not the, the happy, you know, the pretty virgin who, oh, I was raped my first time, right? You know, that's not terrible, but like, I wanted to make her somebody that I knew it would be challenging to feel sorry for, right? She's rich, she's white, she's privileged, she's educated, you know, she's used social media and frankly, the, you know, her body to get attention. Mm -hmm. Um, She's not, you know, she's not, I, you know, she, she's, she would be easy. I, I think about this, like, I remember, you know, watching like reality shows, like the Bravo shows. And, yeah. and I think, God, it's so easy to hate some of those girls, right? Like they just, the way they portray them, it just feels so careless and kind of vain and, and stuff, but like, none of them deserve to be raped either, you know? And, and so I, so I, I really wanted to make her somebody that I, that I knew it would be a lot of people are just going to be like, ew, like, you know, my, in my generation, it was like the Paris Hilton girl, right. Who kind of, it's just so easy to be like, ugh. Um, but I also, the sort of the script flip a little was that, yeah. Claudia in, you know, usually if you're wealthy and white and connected, you can manipulate the justice system 
to get what you need, right? But the one time you can't really do that, right? Yes. Is sexual assault. Yeah. Women can't really do that with sexual assault. In fact, they might even be less likely to be, well, I don't know if they'd be less likely to be believed than just, you know, frankly, a woman who's experiencing homelessness or a woman who has a drug problem, yeah. right? But they're just as likely, obviously, but yeah. by police. I mean, obviously it was the wrong word. But um, so I wanted her, I wanted to highlight the fact that yeah. even somebody in the super privileged position it, it is not really privileged when it comes to yeah. this particular thing and how how egregious that is or how much that shows how far we have to go and then I yes. also really wanted her to be sort of savvy enough and I think a lot of young women today are yeah. to know to, to sort of look at what happened to her with clear eyes and say nobody's gonna believe me nobody's yes. gonna yes and right. I, and and you know that's the fear right is that like yeah. that that if we report enough about like I don't know if you guys have seen the um based on, I think it's based on a ProPublica series, the, the, the Netflix did that series, Unbelievable with- Yes, right. that's another one. Same thing. I mean, it's like, it gives me chills thinking about it, right? Like this, this like, she didn't believe her, right? You know, she, she had maybe lied before, whatever. Um, but, um, the, you know, this is like this awful double-edged sword because, because yeah. you know, we women now know that it's going to be a, a challenge, yeah. not just to get people to believe you, but even if they believe you, you're going to have to tell your story a hundred times. You're going to have to tell it to strangers. You're going to be, you know, this, this thing happened to you once is going to take over your life for, yeah. that's one of the things I learned through the, um, the Chanel Miller memoir, um, yes. know my name, right? So she was the, the, the young woman in the Stanford swim, the Stanford swimmer sexual assault case. She's brilliant and her memoir is brilliant and yeah. that one of the things I learned from reading that memoir which I read you know as I was writing this book was you know just years years of reliving this the worst moment of your life yeah. um in the small hope that you that what somebody gets put in prison for I don't know a few years maybe um, and that's yeah. very unlikely so a lot of women know this and so of course they don't go to police but I also didn't want to like, I didn't want to continue that cycle because, you know, I don't know. I, I, I don't, I don't know what victims should do. I think every, every, yes. every who survived this has to make the decision for themselves. And it's not an easy decision. And I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. I mean, it's real easy for me to be like, if you're a sexually assaulted, you should go to police. We can get him. Yes. But it's just not that, it's not that black and white. Yeah. And like, if you could, have a magic wand and fix everything, you know, Julia, that is the, the response would be appropriate from law enforcement. Yeah. Given your experience, be, like, would you say like, just, is there any way in which this criminal justice system doesn't hurt somebody? And I, I don't, I mean, I guess the problem, you know, it's like, it's the only crime where the default is to not believe the perpetrator, yes. you know, or not, I'm sorry, the, the, the person, you know, Yep. The, the victim as part of me, I, I write a little bit about this in the book, do, doesn't like using the word victim, but they, but yep. it is a victimization. I, I'm not sure, you know, some, some people say survivor, but mm -hmm. then some people also would say like, I haven't, I'm not sure I've survived this entirely, you know, I mean, right. I'm living, but, um, you know, I mean, I think that it's gotta be, it's, 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 it's gotta be individual people from the nurses to the counselors mm -hmm to the the police themselves who who lead with you know who the if the default is i believe you 
then maybe we've made projects, but I don't, or progress, but I don't know how we, I really don't know how we get there. I really don't. I wish I did. Yeah, but you're, you know, your book is a step in the right direction. That is the more that we educate lawmakers and law enforcers, parents, teachers, students, that each and every one of us are part of this dialectical conversation where it don't blame the victim, you know, don't assume that she's got it wrong. Right. Um, we, that's how changing hearts and minds is a huge part. Social attitudes, the relationship between social attitudes and law, legal change are, right. it's such a tight connection. Uh, and here, I think your work is doing that. It's, it's hard to read. It's, it's necessary. Right. And then you're also imaginative in the, you know, the revenge part to me was like, (laughs) you know, there, that's the fun of your work too, is that a little, that revenge part as well was like slightly satisfied. Right. Right. Well, you know, right. Exactly. So you kind of like, you know, do I think you should do what Claudia did? Not necessarily, but I also really, you know, not really, but, um, but I want it part of this book was at some level me having a, me, a little revenge fantasy, me being like, okay, so this has happened to a young woman. Yeah. She is, she has decided the cops are going to, are not going to help me. But again, she has privilege. She has money. She yeah. has resources. So she's going to be like, I'm going balls to the wall. Like, I, you know, yeah. I'm going to screw, I'm going to F these guys up and, um, you know, let the chips fall where they may. And I don't think, you know, I mean, the book, as some people find the ending of the book a little bit unsatisfying and, and it's very mm. hard to, to end a book. Um, but I think it's unsatisfying in a way because Claudia's story is not even close to over. Like she's not, you know, yes. having done this is not like it heals her, right? Yes. She's healing from this forever. Um, you know, yeah. she she maybe takes a little power back and maybe that is some tiny uh, step toward that. but you know, there's no happy, easy ending for people who've dealt with this or whose family, you know, and that was part of the reason I, I spent so much time with her sister um, mm-hmm. in this book was because yes. you know, her sister sort of isn't there for her in her time of need. Not really that she, she doesn't really know that that it was her time of need. So, you know, but that, but I think that happens to a lot of us, right? Like a friend, this happens to a friend or it happens to a sibling. And through no real fault of our own, we're not there in that moment. And that shame and guilt can really break people apart. But, but you know, one of the things I kind of wanted to do in this book was to kind of, you know, encourage the idea that like, that if, that we can, we can and should forgive each other when we're, you know, with family members and friends, like that, that, that we have to give each other a break a little bit when we, when, when we let each other down, um, you know, because I imagine that if this had happened in my family or probably in a lot of families, there's a lot of strife and you didn't, you weren't there for me, or you're not there for me in the way I need you to be there there for me. But nobody really knows how we need, I don't know maybe how I need you to be there for me and vice versa. And so, you know, part of the healing, I think for this book, and maybe for a lot of people is simply like figuring out a way to stay close and connected with the people they cared about. Yeah. So now um, I'm going to bring our LaTeX uh, Center fellow, Max Larson, into the conversation to ask the f- first question from the, you know, from our group. Hi, thanks for speaking with us again today and for writing the book. It was definitely very interesting. And I think I'm certainly in the camp of people you mentioned who found the ending, you know, unsatisfying. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, you talked about like your history of writing from journalism and what the role of having this be fiction played 
because as, as you mentioned, it's very much shining a mirror on society. You know, everything in here felt, I was talking to Professor Citrin about this, it felt like, wow, this, you know, every, everything in here feels very realistic. Um, and, and that was really sad to see. <laughs> and, you know, like the, even this person with so much privilege is like, ah, oh, the police aren't gonna help me. And the police, the legal system really doesn't help anyone and the only times we see it playing a role it's you know it feels unjust it's you know oh the friend who was in the house and he was allowed to be there but you know the police are coming after him for trespassing and so I'm curious what went into the decision of having it be fiction but yet so accurate and not not having it be this version of oh and it's a fiction where we have some crime fighters who come in or where vigilantism is a viable option because I found her revenge deeply unsatisfying. It was like, if this helps no one, it hurts you more. You know, this is sad. This is, a, you know, not a positive solution for society at all. Um, and, you know, is criminalization really the route we want? You just see, you know, you see a little bit of how incarceration ruins people's lives too. Um, so I guess I'm curious that, sorry, that was a little incoherent, yeah. but if you can just talk about, I guess, like the role of this being fiction and yet also hyper-realistic and not, I guess, like, what is the role for lawyers reading this mm -hmm. who want to make positive changes? You know, do we see things in the book or how does that work? Right. I mean, I think, well, you know, one of the things I realized as I was writing this and I was sort of thinking about one of the things that Claudia does is that there's not really any good choices when something like this happens to you, right? Like, you know, um, I, I, there's a great line in, this is random, but like a, uh, the, the, there was a series for, written um, based on a Celeste Ng book called The Little Fires Everywhere. And it's about, it's about two uh, black women and white women among other things and sort of their various privileges. And I remember the white white woman saying something like, I made good choices. And the black woman says to her, you didn't make good choices, you had good choices. And I realized as I was writing this that Claudia doesn't really have any good choices, right? Like she knows that, or she feel, or at least she feels again, as a 19 year old, um, you know, with a, with a, with a sense that, that she's already sort of a slut in the eyes of a lot of the world, right? That that if she goes to the police, they're gonna they're gonna say, well, you were drunk, you know, and haven't you already hooked up with this one guy, you know? And then if she, and and then what's the other option, right? Like so, she does some really ugly things, and you know, I don't think those are the right things to have done, right? And I don't, and crucially, I don't think they will make her happy, right? Um, I guess the book, and and you're right, like about this, it's really in that way, it's really a dark book because like Claudia is not going to leave this book in any way happy. She's not really making good decisions, but, but, but kind of what I wanted to show was that given her, given like the, the, what got dropped on her plate that night and in the days since she didn't really have good decisions that our system, whatever does not allow her to have good decisions. Cause she knows if she goes to police say, She's concerned not only that they'll sort of say like that they'll sort of shrug and say like, you know, I can't prove that he raped you or that or more crucially, I would try, but a jury won't believe me. Right. Like that's one of the things you talked about what lawyers can kind of do. And I've talked to in sort of reporting this book, I talked to um, 
pr prosecutors, and there are, there are some prosecutors that sort of say that that will bring a hard case to a jury. You know, a case where maybe the victim. Sorry, I have something in my eye, so I'm like, I put, I put mascara on for this, and now it's like backfiring. Um, where where they will decide. Um, you know, this case is difficult. She was intoxicated. We don't have a witness, but I believe her. I'm going to take it to trial. But I think a lot of prosecutors will say like, you know, are worried, frankly, more about their conviction rate and will say, I don't feel good about a jury decision here. I'm not going to take it to trial. Um, but if they don't try, whatever. So I think, you know, some of it is, you know, there's there's a way that that prosecutors in the system can, like I said before, kind of default toward believing the victim and default toward believing that a jury will believe the victim. So that would be great. <laughs> I don't know, you know, that's a big, that would be a big change, I think. Okay, great. So, um, and so much, thank you so much for talking about the ways in which it's hard for lawyers even to like undo these structures of injustice totally. and social attitudes that are challenging. So we have some questions in the queue and, I, and one is from my colleague, um, Professor Kathy Wang, and, and it, it is, can you talk a bit about the decision to make Claudia a social media influencer? Mm. To me, that sends really a, a great message to young women that just because you share like a part of your life, it doesn't mean that nothing you know, is private. Right. right. So, right. so talk a little bit about that. Right. I mean, that's the thing is like you, you know, you can still, you can and should be able to still have boundaries that you decide about in your life. Right. Like you decide, you know, I'm going to share this picture of me in bikini. Cool. I mean, if I was 19 and super hot and in the year 2022, I might be putting up a picture of myself in a bikini too. Why not? Right. Um, you know, that's it. You know, there are consequences to that. But those consequences at some level are about other people's perception that maybe, you know, and, and then the question is like, you know, how much do you sort of say screw you in your old time per perception? But then how much do you sort of have to recognize that the reality is some people are going to look at you and think X, right? That, you know, that's something that you have to manage. I mean, I don't think there's a right or wrong way. You have to know as somebody who's any of us on social media have to know, we have to find some kind of balance between our real lives and what we share on social media. And I think a lot of us, I certainly do kind of struggle with this sometimes sharing a little too much. Um, but, but I, I, but you know, that sort of like, just because you're a social media influencer, just because you're a movie star, just because you're a public person does not mean you are not allowed to have privacy. Right. Um, but I think, you know, the meat, the, the media and and just po the population in general is so hungry for sort of you know i mean it's i guess it's like just a human nature thing like somebody people that we admire we love to tear them down right people that are beautiful we love to see them ugly like you know and that system exists um and so when you are putting yourself out there and this is the problem with with young people right is because when you're young your brain's not developed you haven't figured out life yet like you can't be expected to know all, have all this wisdom. There's, it's not possible for you to have that at 18 or 19, right? So there's a risk involved, but I still think, you know, I mean, the bottom line is just that, that if you're like a social media person, right? You get to control your social media. That's the, the deal. And when somebody, you know, somebody taking your control from you is just that, somebody taking your control from you. And that's a violation, I think. Whether or not it's a legal violation, no, no, I think so well said, right, that the 
the, the, the ways in which we manage the boundaries around our intimate lives ought to be up to us. And it's not an all or nothing proposition, which you make really clear. That is the broader theme that you bring out, and which I think is a real positive, right? That Claudia is, a social, is an influencer. She uses these tools and she shouldn't be condemned for it. And even to the extent that she would choose sexual expression to be shared, and she didn't, that first incident with the being on that rich kids of the Hamptons or whatever, <laughs> incident in the book, right? right. Where she, like uh, unknowingly they're hiding cameras in the bushes. And then she's sort of sexually shamed for just kissing someone in the pool. Mm-hmm. But that is, we're nuanced in how we think about privacy right. and that we ought to be able to manage those boundaries in ways that are nuanced right. and that it's not open season on your privacy right. to say, oh, you were on that reality TV show. So you have no privacy in other aspects right. of your life. And right. I think the book is a really important educative tool to help us see that, that there is nuance here, that it's complicated and that privacy isn't an all or nothing you know, proposition. Um, so, so I think that was really beautifully done in the book. Um, so we've got some questions more about sexual assault. So, um, if you want to answer these or feel comfortable, great. I mean, I got, (laughs) so, oh, I have, I have a question about the sort of creative process, which I think you're going to like too. So, so, um, Alex asks, what was your creative process for writing The Missing Hours? Mm-hmm. You know, beyond drawing on your own wealth of experience as a former reporter on, on, on sexual assault, assault, cyber assault, and sex crimes, did you feel the need to conduct research and consult like legal and criminal justice experts? And did you engage, you know, especially in certain types of media or works of fiction that you thought were helpful as you wrote this? Yes, you know, absolutely. Hours? Absolutely. So I, I read Chanel Miller's memoir, which I highly recommend everyone involved in law read because it's such a, it's such a detailed and beautiful um, and harrowing story about what she went through deciding to stand up and, and, and testify against this person. Um, so I read that. I read a wonderful book by, oh God, Michelle, oh, I'm forgetting her name. Um, Rape is not a crime. Brilliant. Um, about a, a woman who's and basically, I mean, and, and honestly, like this is, I feel like I, I think of that all the time when I see headlines, like of people getting away with stuff. It's like rape is just not a crime. Brilliant book. Um, I watched, I'm trying to think what else. And then I did, I did do, you know, use my reporter skills and I did interview people. Right. So I had early in the process with the missing hours when I was kind of just figuring out what had happened to her and how, and, and stuff. I, I interviewed a woman I know who used to be a sex times prosecutor and now writes mystery novels, Alison Liotta. And no. she, um, do you know Alison? Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I I just, I'm like a fan. So yeah. Right, okay, great. But so great so stuff. she and I yeah. were at, we were actually together at a mystery writers conference back in the days of conferences. Yeah. Um, you know, having like brunch together in New Orleans. And I was telling her about my idea for the story, blah, blah, blah. And she was the one who talked to me a little bit about, I sort of said like, what are, you know, if you're prosecuting a sex crime, you know, and you, there's been, you know, somebody has been drinking, what are some of the, you know, and she said that those are the hardest by far the hardest to, to do, because, you know, you can sort of say like, maybe she consented and didn't remember, or maybe he thought she consented, you know, the, the signals are mixed, but, but I remember her saying that, um, but if she loses control of her bodily functions, so if she urinates, yes. if she vomits or something like that, that can be one of the things that jury, like a, for a jury 
they can be like, eh, did she consent? Did she not? But something like that, proof of something like that can really put it over the edge for, um, for a conviction. So I, if you've read the book, you know that that's a moment that, some, that somebody talks about that exact thing. Um, and then, you know, right, the, the, the movie that most closely sort of hits with this book is a movie that came out last year. Um, uh, oh, uh, uh, Promising Young Woman. Yes, right? I knew you were going to say that. Right. Yes. So I avoid, yeah. I, I had finished the book by the time. That yes. Movie, and I avoided watching it because I, when I yeah. read reviews about it, I remember thinking, oh, this is, this is so much like what I've written. Yeah. And I didn't want to watch it. because I was like, oh, what if it's better? Or what if it's, what if it is too similar? Right. Whatever. Anyway, I finally watched it. I loved it. I mean, it's, Oh God, it's so it's a perfect compliment those here. So, right. And, and I remember finishing yeah. it and kind of sighing and going, okay, we have taken very similar stories and material and done different things with them. Yeah. And that was a relief for me, but definitely that's a, a movie that I would recommend when you're thinking about sort yeah. of the, tra- the, the way that the trauma of, ri- of ripples, because, you know, the central character in this book or in that movie is not the victim of sexual assault. It's her best friend. And the, the, like the clear trauma she went through after what happened to her friend. Um, so yes. And, and I do that for most of my books, yeah. do a li- you know, some research here and there, the book I'm writing now is much more, um, a, a little bit in, in um, all my other books have been in, in some way or another inspired by news stories I've, I've mm-hmm. covered. Um, but the book I'm writing now is a little more personal, so it's less mm. research intensive, um, which is sort of fun. But also I, I always I miss research because I get to like meet and talk to people like Danielle. Right. Like I get to, you know, call up people who have deep knowledge in something and just like pick their brains. And that's super fun. So so no return to Rebecca. Not yet. I think okay. I will. Probably You'll go back to her now. I know. But this okay. book that I'm writing does have a reporter. OK, it's a young man. But I do like I want to write more. That was one of the things I missed with the missing hour. I, I was like, I want to write another reporter. Like I just like reporters. I there's so many different kinds of reporters now, and they are dealing with so much with the changes in the industry and all that and all that stuff. So there is a reporter in this book. <laughs> yeah, no, I still love Rebecca. That I had one of my neighbors that worked Dan Ortiz is also a mystery fan and hadn't read The Invisible City. So I was like you must now stop <laughs> and go on Amazon <laughs> and buy Invisible City. So you can Thank get you. to know Rebecca and become obsessed with her as, as I am. So he's like, oh yeah, yeah. He checked in with me later and agreed. Um, what's so interesting about the book too is um, the ripple effect that you, I think, so carefully draw out that is sexual violence and violations of intimate privacy have a way in which they alienate victims from their families and the damage that, right, that the rings of damage that that happen to victims, their families, and then groups that as other people that are up in their situation, like other women looking at Claudia's, you know, if, if, if other women see what happened, they're like, there's no way I'm going forward either, right? And I think that's an important part of the story that you captured really beautifully was like the, the shattering of communities and loved ones and ways in which it exacerbates like silences between people that you almost, at least we see that in, in intimate privacy violations that like people become super alienated from their families because their families don't believe them. They're embarrassed. Right. Or they're or embarrassed, they're, right. Yeah. yeah. About okay. what happened to them. And then, and then um, don't handle it well. Right. right. You so, know, I mean, somebody comes into your home and breaks in and steals things or whatever you tell everybody you shout it to the rap, you know, I mean, you're, you know, but nobody's getting on Facebook and being like, you know, last night, you know, I, 
I, something happened to me in the basement of a, you know, in a bar bathroom, like, like, I mean, you just don't talk about it. It's like, you're not, you don't talk about it. And it's a different kind of crime. And so when it's not talked about, it becomes this sort of shameful secret thing as if being the victim of it is, is shameful, right? And that it is in the air, right? So women and men, you know, actually there's a, a wonderful book that came out last year by Caitlin uh, called The Damage. Um, you know this book? Oh, it's, no, uh, I'm writing it down. Brilliant yeah. book. Hold on a second. I'm gonna, it's right here. Oh, here it is. Hold on. I'm showing it to you. Okay. Wonderful. The damage. Caitlin uh, Warrer um, okay. just got nominated for the same award I was nominated for, the best first novel um, by the Edgar Awards. And it's about um, a, a male college student who's the victim of a sexual assault yeah. and all the ripple effects of that and the shame involved, you know, I mean, maybe even compounded when it's when a, a, the, yep. the victim is a man, right? Um, all different, you know, sort of a whole different set of problems. And it's a really interesting look at that um at that at that because it's not just women yeah it's the the sort of ways in which sort of invidious or bigoted stereotypes and gender norms are reinscribed by the silence and, and especially when you know young boys or young male adults are raped by coaches yes. you know the difficulty of men coming and boys coming forward is compounded too because it you know it almost feminizes them right and reduces them right right um, exactly and that's you know i mean he in this book you know the young man is like you know everyone thinks well you're big you you could have fought him off right you know and there's this you know, I, if it could even be more shameful to come forward for, you know, for a woman, it's like, it's that much more shameful for a man. I mean, it's just, yeah, yeah, it's ugly. So I've got, I got another great question. So given the subject matter that you write about and your intimate knowledge of the vindictive nature of these types of perpetrators, as well as those who engage in online harassment of women who speak out on these subjects more generally, have you ever thought of or felt you might be, that you might write under a pseudonym and had you ever considered that um, and what has made you not choose for this book in particular, you know, not because, of course, the, you know, your other novels, you know, I, it, this is, again, like the sort of thing that intimate privacy violations can create yeah. backlashes from men's rights groups. Right. You know, did right. you think right. about, you know, writing under a pseudonym for this one? Right. I mean, I remember interviewing a, a woman who writes about this and she was like, if you get on the Internet and write about rape, you will be. Yeah. threatened with rape on the internet like that's what happens right and so we know you know I you and I are on Twitter and a lot of people are yeah. like, so many of the women who really take these issues to task and take men you know systems and men you know people in power to task on this absolutely I mean you if you yeah. start looking at their mentions I mean it's just it's horrifying and then sometimes they'll you know screenshot an email they got you know I wish you this the, get get raped and this and that I I I have been very lucky. Um, I left CBS News in 2018 and I was writing mostly about sexual assault, I guess maybe a little earlier, like in the 2012, 14, 15, you know. Um, and somehow, I, I, you know, I got a few emails or, you know, Twitter posts that saying, you know, ugly things about me, but somehow I managed to avoid that. I don't know how or why, um, but I've, knock wood, never been really threatened online knock wood right now um so that didn't really occur to me um but i can certainly understand why people do and i can understand why people 
pull back from writing about this stuff because mm-hmm. I mean, you have to be, uh, you know, you have to take care of your own sanity at some level, right? And your own safety and your own and your family's safety. Um, but, you know, to answer that question, no, I've just, I've not been the victim of that. So I've been lucky. So, okay, another question is um, when, so do rape kits and having victims recount their stories further traumatized victims and how might, or how do you think the criminal or medical system could make the process better for victims of sexual assault? Right, right. I mean, that's the thing. And that was one of the things that I thought was so beautifully done in that series, Unbelievable, was mm-hmm. sort of that, you know, okay, you're, you, you, you've been assaulted. If you decide to call police and sort of go through with, I'm going to press, you know, press charges and I'm going to allow, cause your body is the crime scene, right? Mm-hmm. So then you have to allow your body to have evidence taken from it. So you go to the hospital and they, you know, if you're lucky, you get to a hospital that has what's called a sexual assault nurse, right? And these are nurses who have specifically been trained to interact with sexual assault victims because I mean, they're doing, you know, they're having to pluck hairs and they're having to take swabs and they're, you know, I mean, they're basically having to invade your body again, right? And that no matter, if that's done with care and with, with, you know, some understanding of the fact that you've just gone through a trauma, I think, you know, it can be better than if not, but even so it's going to be painful and traumatic. So if you don't have those nurses who are specially trained, and that's the thing, and it's like, we need at every hospital and, you know, urgent care center, we need to have medical professionals who, when, when somebody comes in and says, I've been assaulted, you know, it's like a whole new protocol kicks in. And that's what happens with the sexual assault nurses, right? So there's that, which is great there, but there aren't enough of them. Um, and then it should be the same way with, you know, and I think the problem with, you know, we have, what is it, 15,000 policing agencies in this country, and everyone is its own little fiefdom, right? It's like, it, it, it the culture of that little agency depends on the guy or, you know, the man usually, or sometimes woman at the top, and what that person decides the, you know, how they're going to treat victims, how they're going to investigate. Is it going to be that we're going to, you know, give them time before we give them an interview? I mean, well, that's one of the things, Mm -hmm. right? It's like that, that some best practices say you need to, you need to um, interview immediately to get all the details. Some say you need to allow them to have the shock wear off. So you give them a little time and then they'll be more willing to talk. You need to go back and forth. And then there's way best practices in terms of how to conduct an interview so that it doesn't feel like you are interrogating the victim, Mm -hmm. right? All this stuff is like, you know, and Danielle, you may be even involved in this, but there are are people who are involved, you know, everybody from from therapists to lawyers and to police practitioners who are involved in creating these best practices, right? And training you know, first responders, you know, EMTs, cops on the beat, detectives, investigators, prosecutors, all the way on up to deal with sexual assault victims with a certain kind of sort of attitude. Um, but not every agency is going to do that. And and not every cop's going to do that, even if they've been trained to do that, right? And so it's like, if you happen to live in a place where the cops have gone through this training, then maybe you get treated a little better, if you happen to live in a place where, you know, the, the cop who got called just doesn't even, you know, believes that most women who, you know, cry rape, like you just got that cop, there's nothing you can do about it. Right. So it's this, this, the haphazardness is so terrible, but I think, you know, we just have to keep banging away at, there is a way to do this with that. That's not only um, healthy, right. And supportive, but that is going to end up 
with a better solution in terms of justice, right? Like if you connect with the victim and make them feel supported and make them and and make them feel safe, my guess is they're going to be more likely to help you and give you the information you need to to potentially find the person who is the who is who is the violator, right? If you treat them terribly, they are going to do what so many women do and drop out of the process. And how can you blame them? Mm-hmm. So, so question about um, the just the laws on the books. Um, is it true that you know you you talked about how um, police are always saying like there's nothing we can do? Is it really true that the police are unable to respond to rape or sexual assault? And I'm I'm asking the question for if someone that what do tools do police officers have? And you know through your experience, I realize you're not a lawyer, but right, um, I'm not <laughs> or cop, but you know, my, my sense is that, you know, if you just say, if you, you know, if I call the police and say, um, you know, I've just been assaulted, um, you know, somebody's going to come to my house or they're going to have them, you know, meet me at the hospital or maybe at the police agency, and they're going to interview me and they're going to make a decision after having interviewed me and maybe looking around my place or looking, you know, whatever information I give them, maybe I give them my phone, you know, whatever, about whether or not they think this warrants further investigation. Mm-hmm. And what further investigation it warrants. Will they, if I have a name for them, you know, this person did this to me, are they gonna, you know, are they gonna go and interview that person? Again, they get to make that decision, right? If I don't have a name for them, if I say, you know, I went to a bar and somebody put something in my drink and I wound it up home and this was what happened, you know, are they going to go to the bar and with my picture and say, who was this person talking to and da, 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 like all that is their decision, right? They decide if they want to investigate. And that's even before we get anywhere near like a prosecutor, right? Like, you know, they could investigate and decide, okay, here's the evidence we believe to charge this person and go to the prosecutor. The prosecutor could say, I don't think this is enough for a jury. We're not going to go ahead and charge. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's all these steps where the, where law enforcement has all the power to decide what the next steps are. Um, And, you know, and then some cases where, um, you know, like the Steubenville case, right. Where, Mm -hmm. um, law enforcement for whatever reason had either not been, you know, had decided like, "Mm, you know, we're not going to look at this. The media in this case, anonymous got involved and made it a public outcry. And so that helped, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, the, I would hold on. I have another question. I don't want to, I don't want to steal the time away from folks who have questions, but, um, Oh, well, we're down to five minutes. Was there? Yeah, we only have five minutes. So I don't want to. I don't want to. Um, God, the audience has wonderful questions. But was there anything that you edited out of this book? And mm-hmm. you know, did you? You know, what did you choose to take out? Were you? You know, were there things that you left out that that were hard for you to leave out? So much. So this book is. It's actually kind of a short book. It's only about sixty-five thousand words. Most novels are, are like more like eighty thousand words. I cut more than seventy thousand words from this book. Oh like I wrote so That's much. A great like, question. Yeah. Yeah. I wrote so much because partly because I didn't really know. I knew what the main drama was, but I didn't really know how I wanted it to end. Like I didn't know what the right ending was for Claudia. You know what would be yeah. satisfying but not satisfying. What would be you know, something like I didn't want to just, you know, there was, I don't know. I didn't want it to just be titillating. I didn't want it to feel like a happy ending with a bow tied around it. I had, I I swear I wrote four endings. Um, Mm. 
you know, if somebody's asking, I see if Chad had gone to jail, would it have been happier? Yes, yes. I, I don't know. I, I like maybe for a minute, but yeah. you know, I, yeah, maybe it could have made, maybe it would have made her feel a little bit better, but it's not going to erase or really, I don't, you know, the trauma of what happened. Right. And eventually he'll get out. It's not like you get like, he's not going to get life for that. I don't get a couple of years and he's, he's, you know, he's going to get a cushy, he'll, you know, he's going to have the best lawyer in the world. He's going to get out in a, you know, a year or two, he's going to have a nice experience at a country club prison probably. Right. Um, you know, I think that the problem for a lot of victims is just that like, there's just no satisfying resolution. So the, to answer that, yes, I, I added it a lot out of the book. A lot of it was backstory. A lot of it was false starts going different places with different characters. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and in some ways, right, the, the incarceration piece that, that when the criminal justice, um, when it operates and operates accurately and well, it sends the message. Right. That, right, right. That right. this is wrongful behavior yeah. and can serve an important deterrent value. Right. But you shrug your shoulders, I saw, and, and rightly so, because it's so complicated that all the lives, A, you can't undo it. Right. It's like part of her, you know, when you yeah. read it, you know, it's yeah. part of Claudia, right? That you can't shake it out of her and that she can't let it go. Yeah. And that all that pain and suffering is still there and that ripple effect from her family and loved ones yeah. and, and groups so that it's like the structures that even if all that works, right? Right, even if all that her. works, it's like, it's not gonna, oh wait, here, hold on. This is the book okay. I was telling you about. Michelle Baudler is rape uh, of Yes, book. okay, yeah. great. I've got, I'm stage managing with all the books that I want. To I share. love that. I, I feel like I channel <laughs> you then book, in, in class. Book. I'm always helping my students about literature that they can read. Yeah. Um, because, you know, as you help show us that, that any wonderful book is built on, you know, wonderful different other books and literatures and, yeah. and helps us change the way we think. And so this book did that. And I hope this book does that in so many in classrooms and um, you know, in conversations around the dinner table so that we can look hard at ourselves and see that intimate privacy violations and sexual assaults are so deeply harmful. And that as a society, we need to integrate those lessons and change our behaviors and support other people. So um, the, so I know I'm, I think I have to wrap up, um, but so Julia, thank you so much for, for writing the book for keep writing all these crime novels. I wish I could say, I want to take you back and have you be in the journalism sphere to help work with me on educating. Right. Well, I'm, I'm teaching right? journalism and, oh, yeah. and, okay. and it's really, you should feel there are a lot of amazing young people nice. who are coming into journalism and want to, and will make a difference. These are like nice. passionate, excited, dogged people and working with them is, is, it's so, it's so much more, it's so much less depressing than being on the crime beat all day long. <laughs> yeah. So we'll have, we'll see many more journalists working with lawyers and law professors to help change yes. hearts and minds about suffering and harms and privacy invasion so that we can make the world slightly, a slightly better place, hopefully. So yeah, we can try together. So with that, uh, the Law Tech Center is so grateful that you came. You are our first speaker um, ah! and, and this was an amazing inaugural event and it means the world to me to have been able to work with you all these years and then now to be here just found from the sidelines and have you come speak so I'm honored. so thank you so much everyone for coming thank and you all. yes it was a wonderful event thank you